Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Tuesday, December 6th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A just process, but an unsatisfying outcome. No, not the criminal conviction of the Trump organization. That doesn't truly implicate anyone with the last name Trump. Look about soccer shootouts, penalties. Yesterday, the Japanese, oh, the brave samurai, went down to the Croatians, and while many glasses of Rocky were no doubt raised in Dubrovnik, as is the nature of Croatian libations, I despaired for the Japanese side, who were thwarted by Dominic Livakovic, who became the third goalkeeper to make three saves in a World Cup penalty shootout. Well, today, Morocco's goalkeeper, Yassine Bono, after keeping Spain scoreless throughout the game, protected his goal well on penalties, the first Spanish shot clanked off the post. Two saves later, and Morocco had defeated Spain. And they deserved it. But penalties, penalties, they're just no way to end a match. They seem to have all the elements of soccer. A guy who could use his hands, a guy who can't, the ball, the net. But that's about it. Soccer is about pace, teamwork, passes, and fitness. Penalties are to soccer What the carnival milk canister toss is to softball. What the carnival ping pong ball into the goldfish bowl is to aquaculture sustainability. What the carnival dart throw is to Ukrainian territorial defense via the javelin missile. I've clearly gone too far. But the penalty is a bit of a simulacrum meant to give the appearance of soccer without the meaning. Like a conviction against the Trump organization sounds big, but really... Penalties are just the best we could do, given the circumstances. I've always said a tied soccer match should be decided by a series of three-on-two sets, like college football lets the team start from the opponent's 25-yard line. Give one team three players in the ball, give another team two players, a goaltender in the goal, and see who scores and see who stops them, and do it until one team has the advantage. At least then, someone could break a sweat, and the ending of the game could include soccer's grandest traditions flopping in the box and arguing about offside. On the show today, Joe Biden railroad man. Hoo, hoo. But first, did you sense that my World Cup complaints might have represented what a psychologist would call displacement? Well, yes. The U.S. team once again crashed out of the World Cup, didn't even get to penalties, handily beaten by the Netherlands, a nation with about 5% of the U.S. population. Their final status, the U.S. team, indicates that we're somewhere in the top 20 of soccer-playing nations, but not in the top 10. It's accurate, but it's not right. Why can't America field a scary good men's soccer team like we do for the women's team? With a very informed answer, we have turned to George Dorman a Pulitzer Prize winner and author most recently of Switching Fields, inside the fight to remake men's soccer in the United States, George Dorman, up next.
The U.S. men's national team has performed ably in the World Cup, but you know, the United States, let me be a little jingoistic here, when it comes to sports, should just be dominating everyone in almost everything, this side of ski jumping or bandy, some sort of ice-based sport that we don't play. Soccer has eluded the United States' true success on the soccer pitch. The question is why? Yeah, we adopted it a little late, but we haven't been that thorough in really strategizing how to get our elite men's team to be as elite or more elite than the best in the world. This is the subject of the new book, Switching Fields, Inside the Fight to Remake Men's Soccer in the United States. George Dorman is the author, Pulitzer Prize winner. Thanks for being on The Gist, George. Oh, thanks for having me. So how big a fan of soccer in the U.S. men's national team are you? Yeah, it's sort of the only, you know, you know this because when you're in the, the sports journalism industry, you sort of, your fandom gets slowly stripped out of you as you see how the sausage is made. But I have never stopped being that obsessive U.S. men's national team fan. And so, you know, I'm that guy who wakes up on, you know, during the season and is looking through the EPL schedule to see when Americans are playing, you know, when is Chelsea playing, when is Leeds playing, when, like, can I, can I watch, you know, somebody play in Spain or Germany? So um, it's, it's to that level. It's the one thing that I, I think I'm still, uh, you know, just a pure nervous, you know, anxious fan. Is soccer your favorite sport necessarily? Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, I played growing up. I played adult soccer in Minneapolis, San Francisco, Los Angeles, here in, in Ashland, Oregon, where I play. I run the, the small club in my community here in Ashland, the Ashland Soccer Club. I coach, you know, U11 boys and U14 girls. And, it, you know, so um, it's, yeah, it's, you know, in my house, if you said, I, you know, my wife would laugh because it's, it's all, it's, we talk about it too much. She needs me to take breaks from me, <laughs> you know, things like that. So. So we're about the same age, I think. Uh, I am one side of 50 and you on the other, but I played a little soccer, probably not as well. I'm going to say certainly not as well as you did in your youth. If you had asked us then, as boys in the early 1980s, where would we be in 2022 after we got space cars out of the way? We'd say, well, by then, you know, maybe not as good as Brazil, but certainly better than England, right? I mean, wasn't that the assumption? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, something starting like 1990, right? Like that was the moment where we felt like, oh, okay, like we're, we've turned a corner here. And then, you know, 94 World Cup, we get out of group. We look, there's some good players. We look okay. Um, you know, and it, it, it felt like at the top line, meaning the national team, especially, you know, after 2002, let's say, when they did well, um, you thought, okay, you know, we're, we, we are, we're turning a corner. We're going to start having a, a stronger and stronger and stronger national team. But what you really look back now is like 2002 was a blip that like we did well that year because of a, some luck, a good, a fortunate draw. And yeah. really, you know, we, we aren't that talented. And that's just sort of been proven in those subsequent years for after 1990, we were like, yeah, we're just not very talented. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about that, not very talented. Do you mean the quality of the team? Sure, all the FIFA rankings, your eyes, advanced metrics, where, you know, barely top 20, certainly not top 10. But player-wise, should we be better than that? Yeah, I mean, I think given how many kids play soccer in this country, um, given the size of our country, given the resources that we have, and yet, you know, we are, we have been, you know, consistently poor, not just at the top line. Like if our best player for years was Landon Donovan, 
well, Landon Donovan was a squad player for Everton. You know, then it was Clint Dempsey and he was very, very good, but you know, he was not one of the best players in the world, so to speak. Right. So we, we, you know, we, we produce better goalkeepers, which is sort of a funny thing that we were able to do maybe because they played other sports, but we, we, even at the top line, we weren't really that good or as good as we thought we were. But more concerning is when you got off the top line, when you got down to like, who's the fifth best player, the 10th best player, or God help us, the 15th best player in the pool. Those players were not, honestly, not good players. Like not re- like they were nice professional players in the MLS. The, the sort of parlor game was, would any U.S. players make fill in the blank? Brazil's team, England's team, France's team, Spain's team. And the answer is no. Like it just, yeah. for years it was no. Right now it's maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. I think that guy would. Um, but but in previous iterations of us, you know, for, for since 1990, since we've really been paying attention to this and making World Cups, the answer is no. Yeah. But, and this gets maybe to the team aspect of soccer. I, I had just, maybe you've seen the documentary on the Redeem team, which was the mm-hmm. superstar uh, NBA star team that went to the Olympics after the Jordan, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley dream team. And they redeemed the fact that uh, the United States lost the bronze. But that was a situation where, yeah, no one from Greece, Puerto Rico, or Lithuania would have made our squad, but they beat us. So even if we don't have the exact best talent, couldn't we play together better so that the uh, whole would be better than the collection of the parts? Yeah, I think we did see that some years, right? I think that, you know, we became kind of a defend and counter team. So, we, you know, we had a good goalie, right? We, you know, goalkeeper. We had some decent uh, center backs and outside backs. We would sit deep. We had a, you know, a nice defensive midfielder who could, you know, you know disrupt things. So we became a, a scheme-dependent yes. program. And so then we just defend and encounter. And so we'd had our moments. We'd have our moments, you know. In the, but that was also frustrating because we don't – as Americans, it's just so – like to be – Underdog, okay, we're okay being the underdog. But to be the underdog that plays that way doesn't really, you know, like it doesn't, it's not the American way of thinking about ourselves, right? So, right. What I wanted to get to, and what's interesting about your book, and if we've lost any of the audience with our deep, deep soccer talk, it's really sociology talk because our failures weren't just to, as you lay out, weren't just because a lack of vision or a lack of effort. They were things like class, race, and something approaching corruption. Could you tell about, I think maybe the class part of it would strike everyone as um, apparent if you think about who plays soccer, but take us through those things. Yeah. So if, you know, when I dug into sort of how youth soccer started in this country, and there's been youth soccer for longer than this, but really youth soccer boomed in the late 60s, early 70s, right? There was a group in Cal- Southern California. They got together. They, w- they were mostly foreigners, German, Mexican, and, and, they, and they wanted to grow the sport. And they tried in a league there, but it, they broke the teams down by ethnicity. So like this, there were teams called, the youth team called the Scots, right? Like, and it was all these kids from the Scottish guys, right, who played in the adult league. So they, they tried that and it fell apart for different reasons, but they said, let's try it again a few years later. And, but they said, we got to make it more American. We're going to do this the American way. We're going to Americanize soccer. And their thinking on this was some things that were kind of smart, like mandatory playing time. Don't put kids, 
Don't make kids and referees have to drive long distances. These are just good business practices. But they also did some things like say, okay, no ethnic names. Everybody becomes the Bulldogs and the Rockets, right? Two, we're speaking English on the sidelines, guys. And then they also said, hey, let's, you know, we need to bring in coaches. We want the moms and dads doing it. We want soccer. The soccer mom, the first soccer mom was, you know, it was this group, came from this group, orange slices, all of that, right? So, and then they rooted it just where they were. This wasn't any like, you know, nefarious thing. They were in the South Bay of South of Los Angeles, you know, in the suburbs. And it grew in the suburbs. Um, nobody cared about what the kids in, in Watts were doing, which were or Compton, which were super close, right? This was the time of the Watts riots and soccer was positioned in flyers and things like that as a safe sport, right? It was, there was all this coded language in the way that they talked about growing AYSO, which is the American Youth Soccer Organization. And so, you know, soccer became a very white, very suburban, very safe in their eyes sport. But it didn't have to stay like this. I mean, football used to only be played basically by Rutgers and a couple Ivy League schools, and now it's become democratized. So why did it? What kept it on its uh, mostly suburban and not welcoming to some of the best potential players? Yeah. So what happened was, you know, like most things when it comes to youth sports, a bunch of parents were not happy with just the version that they were in right now, right? They were in this lo- their local rec league. They'd go to Shakey's Pizza after and get a little medal. They'd play fun games. But eventually parents were like, no, I want more, right? Which is what happens with, you know, mostly wealthy or somewhat well-off parents and their kids and sports. And so club soccer was really born. Private, mostly for-profit clubs. And they became the real power in in soccer development in this country. Black kids, Latino players, uh, player foreigners who might be black as well, they just couldn't crash the party with their excellence. It was it was impossible for them to do so. That's been the story of a lot of other sports. Yeah, I mean, I think at least initially they they weren't really, you know, they were just not part of the conversation, right? Initially, yeah. right? Um, I mean, just things, you know, I write in the book about the different clubs in San Diego around this time that grew in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, there were kids that would be brought into these big clubs like the San Diego surf from El Cajon. Right. And they wanted them. They wanted one or two kids on those teams because they were so talented, but those one or two kids were taking cabs 45 minutes each way. They, they went, they went from on a team where Spanish was spoken uh, where families were welcome at practices to a team where families couldn't be there. Dads couldn't be on the sideline. You know, they'd roll up and kids are getting dropped off in Benz's and Lexus's and SUVs. And they're with the, with $200 shoes and they're, you know, so it's just culturally, there were just these massive barriers and you would think the clubs would say, well, no, we want the best players. The clubs exist to serve the clubs. They have high salaries to pay, you know, so they, they want money. They want the, they want, like if, 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 if a kid is, can pay full freight is close enough to a kid who's can't, they're going to take the full freight kid who's going to pay full freight. And that has been like culturally across the country, the way soccer has operated. It doesn't matter whether you're, I mean, I write a lot about Des Moines, Iowa in the book. Like it doesn't matter whether you're in Des Moines or San Diego, right? That is the way soccer has been operating, you know, really full bore until like 10 years ago. So when I think about what this system produced, 
I think, I don't even know if he's mentioned in your book, but the symbol of this, the best we could hope for is Michael Bradley. Remember yeah. Michael Bradley? Yeah, oh, yeah. He still plays, right? Yeah. Coach's son, very good player, strong, tall, bald. Uh, he played in a top league in Germany, I think. So, you know, really accomplished, but not creative. Very much will push you over, never dribble around you. We had a whole generation or a whole team of Michael Bradleys, and that was the best case scenario. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I have heard him described as like the pinnacle of the AYSO system, right? And I don't even know that Michael Bradley paid AYSO soccer because his dad was a professional coach. But, but what that means is a system that doesn't produce sort of creative, brilliant players, right? It's, it's, Michael Bradley was known for what? He, would, he was the most fit player the U.S. has ever had. The, the famous beep test, he would break the machine because he was so fit, right? He, you'd watch him and he'd be running around, sliding all over, be like, oh my God, yeah. isn't Michael Bradley amazing? And if you really knew the game, you would say, well, while he was running all over, he could have just moved into this space, received the ball, and had the skill to turn with it and then that wouldn't have happened, right? So he, yes, absolutely. Like we produced so many players who you, the rest of the world, what they would say, what's his greatest skill? And you would say, well, he, he works really hard. He's a grinder, right? Yeah. But like he can't yeah. really turn under pressure or, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. But, but also I think that there's something about him and that style of play fitting in with a little of our nath national mythology where we valorize that kind of player. You know, didn't have all the skills, but tried extra hard. And maybe the Brazilians don't fall for that. And it seems to me that a guy who does have the skills, and by the way, it would be nice if they also tried hard, but we don't have to talk about that as much if they have the skills, much better way to go. So do you think we were, I mean, I bought, I take your whole point about how this system was producing Michael Bradley. Sorry to pick on the guy though. He's like, you know, the fourth most successful player in U.S. history. But um, do you think it was also that that's the guy we wanted to pick? Or we just convinced ourselves, like, this is this is the ideal of U.S. soccer because he was essentially the best we were getting? Well, I think there was a, you know, I write about in the book how we had, um, like, when this club soccer boom happened, where did those rich clubs look for coaches? I mean, right, you know, where did they look? And they just started importing guys from Great Britain. Like it was amazing. There was this sort of invasion of Irish, Scottish, and English coaches, right? And they came over and they taught a certain type of soccer. It was over the top, physical, grind, right? It was so, so we, so, you know, all guys like Michael Bradley, you know, again, his dad was a coach, but they came, guys like him came up through a system that was valuing a certain type of play grit, fight, physicality. It was, if you were small and super, like the, the, the line everybody uses is Messi wouldn't have been messy in our country because we would have looked at him and said, you're too small. There's mm -hmm. some truth to that, right? So I think that there was a bunch of coaches and, it, it, and I don't mean national team coaches. I mean like youth coaches, high school coaches, college coaches who were, who would look at Michael Bradley right now you know, a young version of Michael Bradley. And even today, they look at a young version of Michael Bradley and say a young version of Eunice Musa and say, ah, you know, that kid's got more fight in him. I need that fight. Bradley does. Yeah, yeah Bradley yeah. has more fight in him, right? Or I, I love yeah. his bite. And, and, and Michael Bradley's will exist in our system. They should exist in our system. And we might even value 
you know, I mean, Tyler Adams is a more skilled, more athletic, not quite as maybe tough version of Michael Bradley in a lot of ways. Um, so we will, we will value those guys, right? But we just can't go looking for them. We need to be looking for Eunice Musa's. We need to be looking for Messi's. We, ha- and we, ha- we are doing it now, but we hadn't been for so long. You're right. We were looking for tough grinder, right? Run all day kind of types. I came to a conclusion from the book and I want to lay it on you. First of all, to establish this, tell me if you buy in with my premise that for the most part, a country's soccer team is reflective of the country's character that we play. We have long played like a version of America that was probably true uh, up until the 1970s or something. And we've been slow to realize what America is. And America is a whole bunch of black and brown people and not necessarily the tropes of whiteness. So once we recognized who we are as a country, this could help us at soccer. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the national team right now and look at the national team in 2002, you know, 98. I mean, it's really encouraging. There are a number of black players out there. There are a number of Latin players on the roster. And if you look at the youth national teams, if you go look at the roster, say of our U17 or U15 teams right now, oh my goodness, right? Like it is, they are predominantly Latino, black. And I think what happened obviously is we stopped allowing clubs and the federation to decide who the best players were. Capitalism set in and MLS teams realized, hey, you know what? There's good money to be made in developing Tyler Adams and selling him or developing, you know, a Weston McKinney or a Ricardo Pepe or whoever, right? So once that, once we stopped letting the Federation decide who gets to go to Bradenton, Florida and be amongst the special ones, right? Once we just said, hey, you know what? Yeah, like, hey, you know what? No. Let's let the scouts at FC Dallas and Real Salt Lake decide who the best players are. They didn't care what club you played for. They didn't club you play, played for the San Diego Surf or the Mexican League. They were like, who are you and are you good? So once we did that, shocker, our young, really young U.S. team right now looks like America. It doesn't look like suburban soccer. So we just saw the United States go down. Uh, they've made it to this round before. To me, this is where we are among the 16, arguably among the 16 best countries, but certainly not in the top 10. Uh, Does that serve notice for where we have to go? Does that say, maybe people will say, well, we did make the knockout stage. What can be, what conclusions can be drawn from that or should not be overdrawn? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think that we should draw conclusions based on, we've done, we've, we've drawn the wrong conclusions before based on the outcome of World Cup games. You know, in 2002, when we did well, we said everything's fine, right? 98 was a disaster. 2002, we did, we did well. And we're like, look, we're good, man. We're developing players. Then the next, then, then we've struggled since then. It's more for me about how are we playing? What's, what, how are, we, are we being a very cynical, negative team again, where we're not trying? Like, take it to, like, we saw the U.S. take it to England in group play for a half. Like, you could see a version of the U.S., athletic, skilled. Again, we don't have the finishers because that's really hard to find, right? But you can see a version of, of the U.S. team that is elite, that will become, that will continue to get more and more elite as we stockpile players underneath these guys. So I look at the way they play and not the outcome. And I think that the way that they played for large stretches of this tournament 
should just create massive optimism for what is there now amongst the skill set of the players. And also, believe me, what's underneath, as somebody who's researched this and for the book and stuff, what is underneath these players is better and better and better versions of what you're seeing on the field. George Dorman is the author of Switching Fields Inside the Fight to Remake Men's Soccer in the United States. Thanks, George. I really appreciate it. And now the spiel. The brotherhood of railroaded single men is not a more formal way of saying incels. And I gotta admit, I put my thumb on the way station a little there. It's actually the Brotherhood of Railroad Signal Men, one of the big unions of railroad workers who are not striking right now. What's striking about why they're not striking is that the president of the United States weighed in and disallowed it. And what's striking about that is that the president in question is Joe Biden, Mr. Amtrak, self-described Union Joe. But an analysis of the choice before him makes clear that there was no way Biden wasn't going to force some of the dissatisfied union workers back to work. Actually, they never stopped working, but forced them to avoid striking. Biden intervened months ago to avert a strike then and worked with railroad owners on a proposal that was ratified by eight of the 12 unions who got a vote. But one union separated the signal from the noise, as signal men do, and said, hey, this is not some great deal. We want paid sick days. Seven paid sick days, in fact. They wound up getting one paid sick day, and they got a raise, as President Biden in his White House announcement spoke of. At the same time, we ensured workers are going to get a historic 24% wage increase over the next five years, improve working conditions, and peace of mind around their health care. 24% raise, that's how you hear it reported, but listen to all the math there. Like Biden said, it's a 24% raise over five years, so 4.8% per annum, about half of the rise of inflation over the last year. The workers do get an average of $11,000 to sign or ratify the deal, which they must. Now, the president and Congress are certainly allowed to do this. In fact, one might say, like the railroad workers with this deal, they must do this. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says so. The 96-year-old law, the Railway Labor Act of 1926, does give the president the authority to intervene on situations where a rail strike could affect essential transportation. It is not some obscure, little-used provision. This is the 18th time it's been used since it was signed into law. I'm quite sympathetic to the union workers. They are the backbone, or at least the ligaments and cartilage of the backbone that is the railroad system. If ever a member of the public thought, how could these guys strike and screw us all over, especially right before Christmas? Maybe they should ask, how could their extremely wealthy bosses not pay them and screw us all over right before Christmas? Railroad stock is measured in the Dow Jones Railroad index. That's up 71% over the last five years. The regular old Dow Jones is up 36%. Railroads are doing twice as well. So every single signalman probably scoffed. Maybe he coughed and gagged and then couldn't go to the doctor and get paid for it when he heard Joe Biden explain his reasoning this way. And look, I know this bill doesn't have paid sick leave that these rail workers and frankly every worker in America deserves, but that fight isn't over. 
I didn't commit we were going to stop just because of, we couldn't get it in this bill that we were going to stop fighting for it. I've supported paid sick leave for a long time. I'm going to continue that fight till we succeed. Wait, you settled the fight. What do you mean you're still fighting for it? One way to show a commitment to the fight is that when you are a referee in the fight, don't come in and decide against paid sick leave. And yet, and yet, we do have to note that Biden and Congress crafted an acceptable deal to eight of the 12 unions right off the bat. The unions get a decent raise. And sick days are a special category. They're a little like a municipal budget. Whenever cuts are on the line, it's always firehouses that are going to be put out of business. It's never servicing the debt, let's say. Because when you really think about it, what is a sick day except a small proportion? If you work 250 days a year, it's one 250th of your salary. You get paid for not working. So seven paid sick days works out to about a 3% raise. If they were agitating for a 3% raise, it wouldn't be as sympathetic as saying we want our sick days. Yes, I know not all workers take all sick days and not all contracts pay workers for entitled sick days. But this is the way to ask for a little more money that the public will say, yeah, we either we get that in our jobs or we should get that. But if they just came out and said, oh, yes, we would like an 8% raise, not an almost 5% raise, I think it would have less oomph and less force than this seven sick day argument. But like Joe Biden, I would like all workers to get sick days off, but it's not always possible possible to find is what the employer is willing to give up in a negotiation, even a negotiation with the government as the referee. There is one point, however, I would like to make about Biden's role in this overall negotiation. He presided successfully. Unlike the last guy, he didn't cast about seeking to be a provocateur. He is the opposite. I'm doing this story three to five days late because, well, I was away, but also because Joe Biden does not get the credit he deserves for just displaying competence and problem solving, which he absolutely did display. If Trump was a provocateur, Biden is the opposite. A status so unromantic that there's not even a French word for it. What is someone who prevents chaos, who dams the flood? Is he a barrier, a tour? Simply a merchant of calm. Well, there is one phrase for a guy who did what Biden did. Ironically, it's usually used in defense of a wannabe autocrat. In this case, let's apply it to the guy who remedied the burgeoning autocrat. Joe Biden made the trains run on time, not perfectly, but competently, and accepting the kind of hard trade-offs that are the mark of a real-world leader, not a fantasy land strongman. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. She's also in charge of HR and adjudicates on all matters of sick leave. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. What we absolutely don't have is someone who can take the ball, spin someone, roll them in the box, dribble someone, and score a goal. 